You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Lacrosse Boots. Go to lacrossefootwear.com and check out their new line of boots. It is a traditional rubber boot kind of mixed with a traditional hiking boot. And this is the Navigator Series, brand new from Lacrosse Boots. They have two different options in the Navigator Series. They have the Windrose and they have the Atlas. Awesome boots. Check them out. Lacrossefootwear.com. Welcome to the DIY Sportsman Podcast with your hosts, Garrett Prawl and Boudreaux Boswell. All right, before I kick this podcast off, I did want to just make everybody aware that over the last week, I did start up a Teespring store, so I will have merchandise that you guys can order if you so choose, and basically it's you know sweatshirts, t-shirts, um, I think there's even a coffee mug that you can choose from that basically just has the DIY Sportsman logo on it. So if you guys buy something like that, and the easiest way to find it is on my YouTube channel, under any video, there should be links to all this stuff. Um, if basically the way it works is I don't order any of this inventory, I just basically create the designs that go on the shirts, and then they do all the rest of the work. So if you guys buy the stuff, it has just kind of a base price for what it costs to make them. And then there's a sale price and then whatever's left over, I just kind of make up that, uh, that additional profit. Um, and so it's just kind of an additional way that I might be able to make some income to help, you know, fuel all these tags and being able to buy various, you know, arrows and test equipment and stuff like that, that ends up going back into the channel. So that'd be a great way to support the channel. If you guys are interested, it'd be greatly appreciated. Also that logo that I'll have on these uh, t-shirts and sweatshirts and stuff, that logo is actually uh, put together by Parker McDonald. So if you guys dig that logo, uh, be sure to give him some props because he did a, I think, pretty good job on that logo. Since coming back from Colorado, I've been hunting locally a couple times in Wisconsin, a lot of times in Minnesota, and I've been hunting with the longbow for the most part, actually for all of the parts. I know a few of you guys have been basically asking on some of the videos from either North Dakota or Colorado when I was going to break the stick bow back out again and not shoot the compound. I'm probably always going to shoot both in some respects and, and choose one for certain hunts and the other for other hunts. And because of those hunts being out of state, that for me is just a good motivator to use the more, I guess, I want to want to say proficient, but I don't know if maybe that's the best word. The weapon that gives me the best chance of 
being able to take a shot that I know is within that effective range for the weapon. You know, that, that traditional ball have days where I can just drive tacks at 20, 25, even 30 yards. And then there's other days where I'll just have just not as good of groups or I'll have a flyer that maybe isn't quite explained. And so it's like, if I, if I'm really looking at like, what's my, my true, like absolute drop dead confidence, like I'd love to have a deer within 15 yards. And that's just on an out of state trip. It's tough to rely on, you know, going into a totally new area with just a couple of days to be able to hunt and be able to kind of have that confidence that I'll be able to get a perfect broadside or quartering away at a sub 15 that, you know, a nice deer for that area. So that's why I choose to use the compound for a lot of those out of state type hunts. But then back at home and I got a lot more time to fill my tags, then I'm really looking forward to that challenge of being able to try and get that close uh, to a deer out here. And I have more time to get it done. I have the luxury of passing on shots that are, you know, 20, 25, 30 yards and just waiting for that really great opportunity. So that's kind of what I've been doing. I have also been bringing my wife out for her first hunting trips. She started off by just filming me for her first couple hunts. And last weekend she actually carried the bow for the first time. So I basically was just the cameraman and we went out in Wisconsin for the first day. And then we went out in uh, Minnesota for the second day. And she went basically that, that first day was cold. Uh, it was, I think low thirties by the time we got back to the vehicle and there was actually some frost uh, on the, the top of the tonneau cover. And she stuck it out wearing her, you know, first light sanctuary, full set face mask, everything. And then the second day we went out, she went basically a mile back into the marsh with me, um, and went through, you know, knee deep muck and water and all that stuff. Never complained about anything. And she forgot a headlamp on the way back out. And again, just kind of following my tracks, getting slapped in the face with a stick every now and then, um, and never complained. She's, you know, still into it. think, you know, looking forward to the next time she gets to go out. So it's been really uh, a fun experience so far, uh, being able to, to go out in the woods with, with her and share that time. So with that, I think we can actually jump into the podcast itself. So in observing my own development as a hunter over, you know, several years and also observing other people and kind of studying the people that are successful, it seems like, you know, there's a pattern for sure. What I can kind of, I guess, explain in the most simplest terms is that it seems like there's really three different kind of categories that the people that are successful seem to, um, to really have a good understanding and, uh, experience in, and I'm going to lump those three things or those three categories into either the big picture research, the boots on the ground, or just overall woodsmanship. And if you can kind of think of it in terms of like a Venn diagram, you know, those old diagrams you learned about in school that had just overlapping circles and you'd have some things that would fall in one circle, some things that would fall in another circle and some things that would fall in that overlapping region. Well, you can kind of think of these three categories as being three big circles that all are overlapping one another. So there's certain things about big picture research that you can do, uh, that also requires woodsmanship. There's things that you can do boots on the ground that if you have woodsmanship, it'll enhance that boots on the, boots on the ground. And then, you know, there's things that you can either gather from boots on the ground or big picture research. And if you do both, you'll have a better overall understanding than you would with either one or the other. So in this podcast, what I really want to talk, I guess, in detail about is the big picture research side of things. You know, this was for me kind of the first thing that I really got a handle on because when I grew up, I first hunted marshes and when you hunt marshes, when you look at aerial photos, they can be very telling because you can see the, the trails and the, the cattails and the marshes, 
the there's a lot more separation in terms of uh, tree cover and non-tree cover. So it becomes easy to pick out spots once you start to figure out kind of what to look for on the aerial photos. And aerial photos are just kind of one one area of big picture research. You know, I'm going to go through, I guess, a little bit of a list and kind of explain in a little bit more detail kind of the tools that I've used and the tools that I you know, know about and maybe don't use to try and give you guys a little bit better understanding of what things you might be able to implement or maybe some you know, new things that you either only knew partially about and there's some tweaks or, or modifications to some of those systems. So the most accurate, most detailed way of getting imagery for any particular place that you're hunting uh, is going to be a drone. And it's basically because you can get exactly the detail that you need, the exact locations you need, but more so than that, you can also get it at the exact time that you want, time of year and time of day. So if you're looking at aerial photos, you're going to get your top down standard view and you might be kind of held to whatever is available. Maybe the last pictures that were taken in your area are old and not very detailed and that's just the best you're going to get. Maybe those pictures are very detailed, but they're taken at a time of year like, you know, late summer where everything's green and it becomes really hard to determine, you know, what is tall tree, what is close canopy, open canopy, uh, what areas are, um, you know, maybe red brush versus just regular marsh. So it becomes really tough to discern detail because there's not a lot of contrast. So with a drone, you're able to obviously where legal and, you know, using some common sense, you can use those say outside of season, uh, be able to do it kind of earlier, late in the day to be able to get some really good trails, uh, trail visibility, and also kind of shadow visibility to where you can see, you know, the size of the trees. And if you do it in a time where it's maybe, you know, early spring, you don't have that foliage up on the the trees and you get a lot better picture for exactly what trees you might be able to climb. So it's kind of like an enhanced version of aerial photography where you can get a lot of that information pretty close with aerial photos, but a drone will just give you that kind of next level. But again, I'll, I'll stress that you really got to check your local laws because there's a lot of places that I even hunt locally that in the last year or two, they've made specific restrictions uh, for certain areas, right? Like usually the States will have within their laws, you know, the kind of clause that you can't use drones to hunt or you can't use airplanes to hunt. Um, you know, some States will have the law where if you use aerial means, then you have to wait at least 24 hours. A lot of the States that I hunt in, they just flat out say you can't use drones to hunt, you know, during the season. So that pretty much limits you that if you do have one, you got to use it outside of the season. Um, and even with that, a lot of them will have stipulations like you can't, you know, harass wildlife or anything like that, or, or you can't harass hunters uh, with them. So some of that could come down to if you did, you know, get talked to by a game warden, just kind of a, you know, a judgment call on their end. Uh, but typically when I, whenever I would use something like that, it would just be kind of a, a real high level again, just kind of like an enhanced aerial, not ever usually dropping down to see like an exact bed or anything like that. Uh, that's what the boots on the ground is on. That's what the boots on the ground is for me, uh, to be able to get that kind of on the ground detail. So again, it's just a, a real high level, but the level of detail that you can get and the fact that you can do it at the exact time of year that you want and the exact time of day that you want and you know, obviously like a sunny or cloudy day to kind of maximize that contrast really makes it a great tool if you have the, the means and the money and it's legal for you. The next thing that I want to talk about 
is just a natural transition right into that, uh, the aerial scouting. So when we look at things like Google earth, things like, uh, you know, the old Bing maps, which unfortunately aren't really available anymore. Those used to be the best and kind of a, a step up or maybe even kind of like a step between what aerial photos typically are and what like a drone would be because you had a little bit of a, an angled view. Uh, it wasn't necessarily just a straight top down. Uh, but unfortunately they've gotten rid of that in most areas apart from like major cities. But when I look at aerial photos, I try and get as many different sources as I possibly can. So Google maps is just one source. And if you look at a lot of the apps that people use for hunting, like, you know, hunt stand or, um, Gaia or Onyx, they're typically using aerial imagery that's from some other source. And they're just licensing those images for their app. It's not like they have their own satellites usually up in the, up in the, you know, atmosphere that they're flying around and getting their own aerial imagery for. So a lot of times you look at these apps and you might see some crossovers where you're like, oh, that looks like the exact same aerial photos that I saw when I was looking at Google maps. That's the exact same photos that I was looking at when I was looking at, you know, XYZ app. But there's also different between the various apps, there's different sources of imagery. Um, like for example, HuntStand just updated their app not too long ago, like within a few weeks, I want to say, and they now have like two or three different sources of aerials that you can look at at any given time. So I can look at it one specific area. And if I don't like the original aerials, I can click over to, um, two different sources to be able to hope, hopefully see basically either higher resolution or better contrast. Usually it's one of those two things for me, um, or a different time of year, right? Like if it's the summer pictures for me, just, they just don't tell a very clear story. Most of the time, the ones that tell the most clear story for me are usually the ones in the fall, because that gives me the best ability to kind of see the differences between whether it's open ground, whether it is closed canopy, whether it is evergreen versus deciduous trees. And those can be kind of sometimes tough to tell if it's everything's all green. So I definitely like to look for source imagery that is, you know, kind of a good mixture of high contrast and time of year that I want. And the ones that I use apart from hunt stand would be Onyx. I use Onyx a ton for just kind of looking at the public land boundaries and the private land boundaries. Um, typically I use it for mapping as well, even though it's in my opinion, doesn't have as good of mapping features as some of the other apps. Uh, it's just kind of a convenience thing. If you're already in the app, it's sometimes a little bit easier just to use that same app versus switching back and forth to other apps. But I will often reference those other apps like on and Gaia, just to be able to get those additional source imageries to look at if I need to. And sometimes just the, the base one, like Google is probably the most common, I would think that the apps are going to use. And, uh, if you can, if that's like satisfactory in your area, then that's fine to just continue to use that. But for me, I like to maximize the sources just to give me the best overall picture, because sometimes you're going to see trails on one that you don't see in the other, just simply because those source imagery files were taken at like, you know, late evening, early morning, and you're able to get that better, uh, that shadow resolution on those trails. Another area of big picture research would be kind of word of mouth. So most commonly I would say for me, uh, the word of mouth thing is like, I'll get messages from people who hunt near me. I'll post a video. Hey, I think you're hunting out here and, and I'll get to talking to somebody and they've been hunting there for, you know, X number of years. 
and you know they're happy to to share info and I'll share info back. Um, usually, I'm I'm pretty reserved about what information I share unless it's somebody that I know pretty well. Uh, like Shane Simpson, for example, we we share a lot of intel that we learn because we hunt, you know, pretty much the same areas for the most part. And I, you know, stay out of the stuff that he finds. He stays out of the stuff that I find. But you know, I might be just as well to go send him to a spot that I found if it if I can't, you know, if I don't have a reason to, or if I don't have the means to go hunt someplace, I'll be like, Hey man, uh, this is a pretty good spot. And he would do the same for me. So that kind of Intel is really great to have because it enhance or it, uh, multiplies the, um, it multiplies, I guess the opportunities that you're going to have and the amount of knowledge you can collect on a certain area. And that kind of Intel is, is nice too, because you don't actually have to be out in the woods, uh, to be able to gather that type of Intel which again, into that big picture research, I'm kind of loosely defining that whole bucket as things that you can gather without a la- without any kind of knowledge of woodmanship and without any kind of uh, actual boots on the ground. So, you know, aerial photos, talking to guys um, either via phone or messenger or things like that. Um, those are all things that you can do without actually being on the ground. The other thing that, you know, through word of mouth that in my experience hasn't been as helpful as just kind of talking to locals. Like if you're in an out of state area, talking to biologists or game wardens can be helpful. Um, it seems like typically when I've tried to do it in the past, I haven't really gotten anything that's totally groundbreaking in terms of information. Usually if I'm reaching out to like a a local game warden or something, I'm trying to figure out like, Hey man, is there like any, like what's the deer population like in this area? Like, was there some major, you know, EHD outbreak or something like that, that I should be aware of? Um, just so I don't make like a, you know, six, eight hour drive and then find out that there's hardly any deer because they all got killed off, you know, a couple of years prior. So that's kind of, for the most part, the, the most I'll utilize some of those other resources. Um, when we were out in North Dakota, um, sitting in some of the bars, we were talking to guys, uh, and just kind of got, you know, not obviously specific spots or anything, but we definitely learned a lot about the kind of the hunting practices in the area and what, you know, caliber of deer were in the area how most people hunted, when most people hunted, um, and just kind of some of the, like the laws and just the kind of the standard practices of the guys out there. So that was kind of interesting to learn as well. And the next thing would be glassing. So with glassing, obviously, once again, it's one of those things you don't have to get out of the vehicle to do. So I'm lumping it in that bucket of the big picture research and glassing for me is something that I don't partake in a ton. And it's simply because of the places that I hunt. Um, I would say maybe you could, you could maybe even lump observation sets into this. Uh, for me, if I were to do an observation sit, it usually means I'm walking out, you know, half mile, three quarters of a mile, whatever, to some spot that's close to the spot I would end up hunting anyway. So I would almost lump that for me into the category of like on the ground type scouting. But if you're the type of person who has access to a place where you can just kind of glass from the road, then obviously that's another way that you can get very good intel, uh, especially earlier in the season in terms of what kind of deer are in the area and what they might happen to mostly be feeding on at that exact time of day or that exact time of year. Things that'll definitely help your uh, big picture research is going to be understanding how deer move, understanding how deer bed, um, and just kind of getting a feel for how, learning how to read a map. You know, when you look at a topo map, what does that actually mean? Can you read a topo map accurately and know exactly what you're looking at and be able to help prepare. 
you know, when we were out in Colorado, one of the things that I found helpful from a topo map standpoint was the slope angle shading, which you can find on caltopo.com or out in the field. We use the Gaia app. Uh, and we were able to look at the topo maps with those slope angle shadings overlaid and be able to figure out how steep actually some of those hills are. Because sometimes in really steep country, the topo maps, not, they can be misleading uh, because they can only show you so much resolution. You might not find that there's actually, you know, a 20 foot vertical ledge in certain areas because it might not show up with that level of resolution on the maps. So that can definitely be helpful. And I think, you know, when I kind of alluded to this was this big picture research was kind of the first thing that I really uh, started to be, become more experienced in, uh, it can be a hindrance when it's the only thing you become good at, because I would take my big picture research to the point where I would rely almost, almost totally on it, where I would pick a spot on the map and say, everything about this on the map makes it appear as if it's going to be a great spot. And then I would have my mindset basically before I left the vehicle that based on that wind direction, I was going to go hunt that spot, regardless of what it looked like once I got there. And sometimes it worked out great. And other times, you know, I just, it was a dead set. There was not that much fresh shine. And I, in hindsight, shouldn't have hunted those types of spots, but based on how confident I was based on just the map alone, I ended up hunting them anyway. So again, I think kind of holistically, this, this whole picture is kind of where some of these people that are very successful tend to have a, a very good blend. When people start to dive in and do a lot more research and find out about like deer bedding and things like that, I think two of the areas that they likely fall into right away are the boots on the ground or the big picture research, or maybe some kind of a combination. And depending on what their skill set is, they become very good at one of those things. Um, but just because somebody can find deer beds and just because somebody can find potential bedding locations on a map, there's still a big, you know, learning curve to be able to translate that knowledge into consistent success. So that's where kind of the, the wisdomship bucket also falls in. And that's something that you're you're never going to really become a true expert at. It's just kind of a lifelong learning experience for that uh, set of skills. So we can, I guess, dive into the boots on the ground stuff more specifically now. Some of the things that I've, you know, kind of picked up over the years. Obviously with boots on the ground, like I just mentioned, you can find actual beds. Whereas with looking at maps, you can oftentimes, once you become good at it, you can figure out pretty close to where deer are going to bed. Sometimes you can figure out exactly where deer are going to bed based on uh, whatever the topography is. Uh, but if you actually are on the ground, then you for sure can confirm whether or not those beds are there. And more so, are they buck beds? Are they doe beds? You know, how heavy are they being used? Is there, you know, hair in them? Is it maybe a primary bed? Is it all rubbed up? All those kind of things you can find with boots on the ground, which makes it a lot more specific than just looking at that map research. The big, the big one for me with boots on the ground that I just simply can't get from oftentimes big picture research is hunter sign and other hunters, you know, potential hunting spots. Uh, when I hunt in the twin cities, there's a lot of times where I find spots that look good on the map and there's a lot of hunters around here. So some of the spots that look good to me on the map also look good to other guys on the map. And oftentimes when I get back into some of these areas, I'll find scent wicks or I'll find uh, tree stands that are set up in trees, old screwing steps. I actually found a, a set of screwing steps the last time uh, my wife went out with me and they were in the tree so long that literally the, the bark had grown around all but maybe two inches of the steps. So it's just kind of two inch little pegs sticking out of the side of the tree. And it's, it's a fairly common occurrence, I would say, that I find hunter sign just because of the amount of hunters that are in this area. And the fact that I think 
well, I bet a lot of them were probably hunting like that for a while. Uh, but I think kind of this, you know, popularization of the beast style tactics, definitely there's a lot more guys going deep and finding those island looking spots. And they're not afraid as people used to be of kind of, you know, crossing some water to get to some of these good looking spots. So I might find, you know, 30 good looking spots on a potential map. And I'm looking at, you know, several thousand acre piece of land. But once I go in there and scout it, that's kind of the point where I find out, okay, you know, 14 of these 30 spots had hunter sign on them. And that might not mean that there's, that those spots are always getting hunted. But what I often find is that guys will continually go to the same places over and over. Um, when you talk to guys at the parking spot, oh yeah, we usually go back in this area. Okay. Is that the only spot you guys go? Yeah, pretty much. Or you might just find that they typically are always walking off the same direction. Every time they go out to hunt, they're always park, you know, parked in the same parking lot or in the same area on the side of the road. That's so common. I see that all the time uh, where most likely they had success in a certain area. And then because of that success, that's the spot that sticks out in their mind to being a good spot. And they're you know maybe afraid or reluctant to go and find other backup spots or potential other fresh spots because they keep thinking back to those good memories that they had at that particular spot. And there's also the very good likelihood that maybe they will continue to have success in those spots. Uh, maybe it's not the best success that they could be having, but maybe it's good enough for them to get not want to seek out something that's totally new. So from that, I can kind of usually get enough spots gathered up where, you know, I will have not only just a couple spots that don't have any hunter sign. I might have some spots that have what I would consider to be like old or rarely used hunter sign. And then also those other ones that are just devoid of hunter sign. And that's really valuable information for me to have when I'm hunting some of these heavier, um, heavier pressured areas. And that's information that you can get without kind of having any further woodsmanship knowledge. That's information that you really can't get too terribly well from big picture research. Uh, yeah. If you, if you see obviously like four wheeler tracks or something heading out across a field or a marsh or something that comes from private land, then you can pretty well, you know, tell that that's probably a perpetual trail, uh, used by some of the, you know, private land hunters to be able to get back into some of those spots. Uh, and especially if you go into the Google earth and you look back year after year after year, and those trails keep showing up, then that's a pretty good indicator that those spots are getting hunted by other people, but that's not always the case. And if, especially if you're hunting an area that has, you know, kind of a close canopy forest, then, I mean, you're really not going to be able to tell much from the aerial photos in regards to how other people are accessing apart from just knowing where the parking lots are at. And apart from, or probably knowing where there are hunter access trails or logging roads. So one thing that I additionally can find with boots on the ground is specific tree selection. And oftentimes I can get really close with the big picture research by picking a spot on an aerial. I might know exactly within a 30 yard radius of where I want to set up. If it's more of an open area, I might be able to pick out an exact tree, look at the shadow and say, that's a pretty big tree. I'm going to have to force myself to try and get in that tree to be able to hunt this particular spot. But oftentimes what happens is I get into a spot once I'm ready to hunt or if I'm just scouting it in the postseason, and I'll just sit there for 10, 15 minutes, study how the deer are coming into a certain area and then figure out what exactly is going to be the best tree to be able to sit in. And then I can look at the exact branches, think, well, there's, there's, you know, not enough back cover on this one. There's too much front cover in this one. I won't be able to trim any lanes um, and just kind of figure out not only which tree is going to be 
climbable, which tree is going to be closest to the trail, but also which tree is going to allow me to draw back with minimal movement, which tree is going to allow me to draw back with the most amount of back cover or front cover. Just basically, I want to be able to get to full draw without getting picked off. And part of that, I just can't get from looking at aerial photos. I have to be actually out there and figure it out. Oftentimes when I'm out in the woods, the other thing you can obviously find with boots on the ground is deer sign. I talked about bedding already, but also obviously the things like rubs, scrapes, if it's in season, it's the most valuable, but if it's post season, it's valuable as well. It's just not as time consistent, right? I might be able to find a scrape in February if there's no snow on the ground, but I don't know exactly if that is a scrape that was made during the rut. I don't know if that was one of those community scrapes that's been there since September. I have to actually be out there in the season to be able to get that kind of granularity, but at least I know that there's one there and I can kind of use that to my advantage. The other thing I can obviously look at is tracks, right? And from the tracks, I can find the size of potential deer that could be in the area. Uh, same thing with rubs. If I'm finding a lot of big buck sign, that's something that I can't get from looking at aerial photos. It is something I could probably get from uh, glassing from the road or shining if it's legal in the area, but not always the case because a lot of times, like I mentioned earlier, in the places I'm hunting, when it comes to the agriculture fields, I don't necessarily have access or driving access to be able to look at those fields. There might be fields that are landlocked by other private, like there's just no road going by them. So I might not just be able to drive by and see what's coming out into the fields right at dusk. I'm not exactly sure how trail cameras fit into this. If you would consider those more boots on the ground or big picture research, I can kind of go either way. Trail cameras from the standpoint of, yeah, you can sit in your computer and you can look at those photos and be able to, you know, decipher them and make decisions. Yeah. I can definitely see that as kind of a, a big picture tool, but also, I mean, you have to be out in the woods for the most part to be able to check your trail cameras, unless it's a, a cellular camera. So you are kind of out there in the woods and getting that real time data and the fact that it is oftentimes real-time data, if that's how you're using your trail cameras, makes it to me a little bit more similar to in-season scouting, which kind of lends me to put it in the bucket of boots in the ground. But again, it, it's one of those things you can kind of go either way on, I think. And I think for the most part, between those two buckets, boots on the ground or big picture research, that's where I would venture to guess most guys get the most proficient in the fastest. Because once you learn the principles, which are now, you know, all over the internet, there's a lot of information, obviously about how to, how to hunt deer. There's always been information on how to hunt deer, but a lot of it. So for so long has been focused on how people hunt deer as it relates to, you know, private land, crop fields, things that you would see on TV. But now in the last several years, more and more, uh, with things like the public land challenge, the hunting public, uh, the hunting beast, um, guys like John Eberhard writing their books and doing the DVDs and, and more podcasts popping up from, you know, a whole bunch of great sources. There's so much more information about how guys, uh, can go and try and hunt these deer. And a lot of it pertains to specific strategies with boots on the ground. And a lot of it pertains to what to look for, uh, with maps to be able to figure out where to even start, how to eliminate, you know, wasteful ground and make your scouting more efficient, that type of thing. But the thing that I would venture to guess most guys are lacking at least for the first several years is that woodsmanship, right? Like being able to look at tracks and identify exactly what they mean, be able to tell how fresh those tracks are. You see a track in the mud. Well, is that, is that a today track? Is that a yesterday track? Is that a track that's dried up and it's three weeks old? 
Um, same thing with food source identification. I think most guys are to the point where they can be able to tell if, and you know, an oak tree is being fed on. If deer are walking out into a field, obviously those are, are being uh, major food sources at those times, but what else are those you're feeding on? If you walk into an area that has heavy browse, are you able to tell that that area has heavy browse? Are you able to tell that the deer have been uh, feeding on fresh, you know, forbs and grasses and things like that? Or is your, is your knowledge basically limited to, you know, seeing the deer walk out into fields or just assuming that they're eating the oak trees or eating the acorns? That's something that it, it seems, it seems kind of obvious on the front end, but I think it's a lot more difficult to kind of learn exactly what that is because it's one of those things where it's hard to describe unless you see it, right? Some, a lot of these woodsmanship things in general, until you hunt with people that are really good woodsmen, it's really hard to get a grasp for exactly what that means. Something that I can relate it to is like when I go turkey hunting with Shane Simpson, that guy is just a straight up turkey killer. And I learned more in two days of hunting with him than I'll figure out just kind of, you know, doing my own thing for the entire rest of the season. And it's not so much in just kind of the calling sequences or where and how we're setting up. It's kind of how he moves, how he reacts to certain things, how he, how he listens to certain sounds and picks up on certain things, the little tiny things that he'll see in the ground, like, like maybe a track that isn't even it's hardly a track because it's just kind of a depression in the ground, but you can tell because of the dew and whatnot that it was made that day. Um, there's just small things that you pick up on from hunting with people that have been doing it for a really long time and are really good at what they do. And they have that woodsmanship that for me, it seems like the quickest way to really be able to pick up on that is to be able to hunt with people that are better hunters than you are, which obviously is not always feasible for a lot of people. So what that, usually means for most guys is that that aspect of their hunting is going to take years and years to kind of accumulate over time. And it's just kind of one of those never ending learning cycles. I'll probably never get to the point in my life where I'm truly an expert. I don't know that there's a ton of people out there that are, you know, truly experts, but there's a lot of guys that are really, really good at these woodsmanship type skills. And if you talk to a lot of these guys, usually they'll end up saying something along the lines of, them not being an expert and always out there continuing to try to learn, which just goes to show you that again, it's not just something you can pick up a book and read and figure out and just know you really, you got to put the time in, um, you know, everybody's looking for the fast, easy solution. And I think the big picture research, the tools that we have now definitely lends itself to that type of mentality. Same thing with boots on the ground. Once you know what to look for. That's a huge advantage. And a lot of guys get that information and think, okay, now I have the keys to success. Well, they have a couple of the keys to success, but not the whole, the whole picture. But I definitely still think there's value in trying to hone all of the skills for each of these three buckets of big picture research, boots in the ground and woodsmanship. And the woodsmanship is just going to come with time. You got to spend time in the woods. You got to be observant. You got to, if you can try to pick as much information about guys that are really good at what they do and try and learn from them with the boots on the ground versus the big picture. You know, if you're better at one than the other, some guys are just better boots on the ground guys. They're like, yeah, I kind of look at the maps and you know, I just would rather walk out there and get that information real time for myself. Well, that's fine. Um, but you might be missing out on how, how much more of a in-depth understanding you could get. If you also relayed that back to aerial photos, you know, I used to hunt with a guy who, when we would go hunting, around Duluth, we would, 
look for private land uh, permission properties and I'd be, you know, scanning the, the aerial photos, looking at the, the plat books and, uh, and he would just kind of look at a place and be like, I like those woods. We should get, try and get permission there. Not even really knowing if it was a five acre, if it was a one acre, if it was a 50 acre, just looking at the woods and saying, yeah, this is where we want to go and then get permission and then kind of walk back from there and figure out the property lines and, and look for sign. Uh, whereas I was kind of always the opposite. I was kind of lending myself to, um, kind of those digital tools to be able to try and get an understanding of everything first before I ever step foot on the land. And I definitely learned more from like, I shouldn't say I learned more from, I, I benefit from forcing myself to gather as much information with boots on the ground as I can, because naturally I'm a little bit more inclined to learning off of those aerial photos and the maps and the digital scouting type things. So that's kind of how I can really make sure that I'm focusing on my weak points and become better well-rounded. Whereas the guy I hunted with, um, as that, for that example, he was good at boots on the ground, but he was not a map guy at all. And perhaps if he would have used or learned to use maps a little bit better, uh, which I can say he's a, a great map reader in general because he's really good at it for, for fishing, uh, looking at contour maps and understanding what's going on in the overall big picture of things. If he applied those type of skills to deer hunting, I think overall he might see a big improvement in his success. So in a nutshell, that's kind of what I really wanted to tackle. I think the main point I wanted to make today is that a lot of people focus on either digital scouting tools in terms of big picture research, or they focus on boots on the ground based on the things that they learn from podcasts or things that they learn from DVDs, articles, things like that. But you have to remember that the more you can kind of blend those two things together, I think the better well-rounded you're going to be. And also remember that there's a woodsmanship aspect that kind of intertwines itself into all these other things. And it's something that you're just going to learn over time. So you can't expect to have instant success, even if you do kind of learn some of those major keys to start becoming successful. So I think I call this a wrap for this podcast. As always, make sure to follow the Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Leave us a review on iTunes. And if you're looking for additional content from either myself or Bobby Boswell, subscribe to DIY Sportsman and Boudreaux Boswell on YouTube. And with that, thanks for listening.